People want more democracy, not less. It's time to talk progressive politics and practical solutions with Joy Silver. Outspoken from Radio 111. Now, here's Joy. Well, here we are in 2023, and this is Joy Silver on Outspoken. And we're here to talk today about one of the most important subjects, sheriffs gone wild. We have with us today Jessica Pishko, who has been on this show talking about this issue and always has very critical information to share. She is an independent journalist and lawyer who has been writing about the criminal legal system for a decade with a focus on the political power of law enforcement officials. Since 2018, she's been focused on American sheriffs and their role past and present in perpetrating mass incarceration and white supremacy, as well as how sheriffs present a growing threat to democracy in this country. Her latest book, The Highest Law in the Land, is about the roots and rise of sheriffs in America. A welcome back to Outspoken, Jessica, and Happy New Year. How are you? Hi, good to hear from you. Thanks. You've been busy, Jessica. Is your book available? It's not available yet, but I've been working hard on it. Okay, I'm going to be one of your first readers, I'm sure of it. You wrote some very interesting things in your Pose Comitatus Substack subscription, and I was really interested in what you had to say. But before we get into some of those items, can you talk about the Pose Comitatus Act? Sure. Happy to do it. So the Posse Comitatus Act is, it's, so there's two ways in which the word Posse Comitatus is used. In its literal translation, it means the power of the county. And so typically the Posse Comitatus power was given to sheriffs as county law enforcement in which they could, in essence, ask any adult men to uh, join what would basically be a small militia to enforce law. The Posse Comitatus Act was passed in the wake of the end of Reconstruction, and it was largely passed um, with pressure from the southern states who wanted to ensure that the federal government would not use the army or any other militias to enforce the new 14th Amendment. So Mm -hmm. basically, the federal government at that point during Reconstruction was sending the military into the South, as many, I think many people know, to force them to, in essence, end slavery. So they had to force people to free their free enslaved people to allow them to vote and allow them to kind of operate their own communities and government. And so the Posse Comitatus Act was actually passed when Reconstruction ended as a way to ensure that the South would not have federal troops in kind of what they considered invading their turf. So the Posse Comitatus Act is a bit confusing because it sounds like it should be allowing Posse Comitatus, but it's actually it's actually asking, telling the federal government they can't use their federal posse or what we would call today like the FBI. Mm-hmm. That seems to be created and passed so that that could support Jim Crow laws without any interference from the federal government. Yes, that's exactly right. The, uh, the the net of it was that these southern states wanted to continue their history of white supremacy. And in order to do that, they wanted to make sure that no one would interfere. 
And particularly the people who uh, who were asked were citizens and what they meant, and you can tell me if this is correct, if I have it correct, this was to make sure, I mean, the only people who were allowed to be part of that uh, militia, as it were, were non-military uh, people. And that means no army. You could not be part of the army. You couldn't be any, any part of the federal military team. I think for local posses, yes. Although I have to confess, I'm not totally sure. Yeah, because that's. I think it's all very interesting, especially in the recruitment place. It basically gave the authority for sheriffs to create militias, period. I mean, that's really it. They could create their that's own it. armies. I mean, yeah, they used to call it the they used to call it in the back in the days what they called the hue and cry. So you could I think that this sort of also provides echoes of the America and the America West. So they would, you know, in essence, run through the land, ask for everyone to get on their horses and pick up their weapons and do whatever needed doing. Actually, this is a sort of random fact, but when Ted Bundy escaped from a Colorado jail, the sheriff used a posse that he raised through his power of posse comitatus to look for Ted Bundy, who had escaped this jail and was like running away into the forest. Hmm. So that's kind of, you know, like a modern example of like what the posse would do. It also seems like it allows for renegade enforcement at the borders as well. I mean, it, it, it makes the case. Yeah. Uh. I think it depends on what you think the law ought to be. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with you that, right, if you think, you know, it's the case of, I agree, the case of a posse to look for Ted Bundy or, you know, guiding a parade, I think it seems a lot less uh, intimidating. Of course, if we think that, uh, as in Texas, you know, where I live, that sheriff, a sheriff here was going to deputize members of a militia so in essence, uh, deputize something like a posse to uh, prevent uh, migrants from walking across uh, property. So that was right. So that would be another example. Wow. That's really a lot of power there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're talking about a lot of power. That was basically what you were giving the um, kind of the, the roundup for how you see sheriffs and where we are now with the sheriff's organization. And uh, the first thing that you talk about was sheriffs riding on their popularity are going to enter other political races in greater numbers. Talk a little bit about that. That's for me, that's that's a bit scary. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, I think in one hand, it's not like, it's not that shocking that an elected official on the local level would run for other local office. This isn't altogether alarming. I do think that right now, um, because we're in a bit of a backlash to law enforcement reform, that members of law enforcement are more popular right now. So, for example, Nevada just elected the Las Vegas sheriff, Joe Lombardo, to be their new governor. So that's an example of someone who was a sheriff and just got elected to governor. Um, I mean, on the flip side, someone, the sheriff of Albuquerque, New Mexico, ran for governor of New Mexico and lost. So the, not to say they always win, but I do think right now we'll probably see more law enforcement officers run and win because I think right now the rhetoric has been very pro-law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Whatever happened, of course, to Sheriff Mark Lamb? We don't know yet. Um, he, ha- I, I'm not sure if people probably are aware because if they 
which I don't think they follow, like Arizona Sheriff, he had announced that he had said that he was considering running for a Senate seat. He actually, his son and his son's family passed away a couple of weeks ago. So Mm. I think that he's been waiting to announce if he's going to because of that. So he had a family tragedy and I think is sort of waiting to announce what his plans are in that regard. There's been a bit of gossip. So the gossip was that uh, Carrie Lake, the failed Republican gubernatorial candidate, might run for the Senate seat. There was a rumor that Carrie Lake asked Mark Lamb to run because she thought that he would be more popular. Um, I think Sheriff Mark Lamb is someone who seemed very focused on higher office for a long time. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, is at the Arizona. We are talking about Arizona here. And certainly Carrie Lake has certainly been in the news enough for people to know that's where we're headed to in, the, in, in terms of how crazy, crazy elections can be. She's certain that she still won. And, and uh, they have quite the fight on their hands out in Arizona. It's, a, it's an interesting state. Yeah. Right? They have an interesting history. In California, the uh, ex-sheriff, the Sacramento sheriff, just won, I think, a state office. Mm. He ran for, I can't remember if it's, I cannot remember, but he ran to uh, be a state representative. And and as people might be aware, that Sacramento sheriff was actually, well, not necessarily aligned with the Constitutional Sheriff and Peace Officers Association, was certainly a friend to them. He was a, a COVID denier you know, during 2020. Scott Jones. Scott Jones. Yeah. And so this this whole alignment of sheriffs with um, the, the part and parcel of the uh, the bullet points, the the COVID deniers, the the election deniers, it, it's there's a lot of no there. <laughs> so, there's a lot of no in that platform, you know, and it's it's interesting to me that the party of no seems to be moving forward in the way they are, but I think we're going to be saying no to them, uh, certainly in 2024. One of the, the other things that you mentioned was the sheriffs using their position as messengers of the people will become more involved in backlash against public education. And talk about that because we saw Moms for Liberty here, right here in Riverside County. So talk a little bit about what you see on the national level of that. Oh, indeed. Oh, okay. That's good to know. Um, actually, I wanted to correct a little bit on the Sacramento ex-Sacramento sheriff. So ex-Sacramento sheriff Scott Jones ran for U.S. Senate and did not win. Okay. Um, so he did not. So I decided to clarify that he's not currently in any office, but did try to run for the U.S. Senate. So what we have been seeing across the country is um, this group Moms for Liberty and other parents' rights groups Uh, which is what they call themselves, have been reaching out to their local sheriffs for assistance in things like forcing school libraries to remove books or attempting to use laws, especially criminal laws, to their advantage. So in a few places they have reached out regarding um, uh, pornography laws and an attempt to use those against teachers and librarians. Um, And I think that, you know, one of the reasons why is that the sheriff, the county sheriff in most cases is more friendly to their cause. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, in addition, as you know, your listeners and you well know, the sheriff runs for office. So because the sheriff runs for office on a platform, he necessarily has to attend dinners and luncheons and various fundraisers with other people who are Republicans. And one of the things I saw was that a representative from a parents' rights group would contact a sheriff about 
let's say, uh, removing a book from the school library, and then, you know, shortly after or maybe months later, you would see that the two of them would also be at the same luncheon or fundraiser or, you know, church event or something in which, right, they were both, in a way, lobbying. So the sheriff is must keep their vote on the most of those parents' rights groups are also doing things like running for school board and endorsing candidates. So I think it is both like a political and a law enforcement move. Mm -hmm. I saw very big evidence of that and the fear that certainly teachers had when I was in Seminole County in Florida, and I was doing some canvassing there for uh, Val Demings, who was running uh, for Senate there. And it was quite unnerving, the uh, experience that they were going through, and also what's happening now at the different school boards right here in Democratic state of California, where they're facing exactly the same talking points and exactly the same issues as they are all the way in Seminole County, Florida. I mean, it, it's quite shocking to see how organized uh, this group is, but also how national it is. And I think this is something that we have to really call out and be prepared and identify as the opposition to democracy here. I think so. I mean, I really think that this similar to, and this is another way in which they're quite similar to constitutional sheriff groups, is that they form um, sort of almost like cells. And so in this uh, manner, they're able to cross the country and generate different branches. So Moms for Liberty has certainly been really successful in doing that. And they partner with groups and you know, one of the things is there's a lot of like cross pollination because most of those partner with the same and similar groups. Um, also, in a lot of places, school resource officers are uh, deputies in the sheriff's office. So, in Florida, for example, um, school resource officers are all run by local county sheriffs. I think in Riverside, at least they are as well. So, uh, that provides another incentive for uh, the union of, of sheriffs and people who are attempting to create change in schools. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the church, uh, there's also the, you know, belonging to the same churches with the, who, who hear this kind of information um, at least every week, if not more, with their community events. I mean, this is something that I think that those who are defending democracy and Democrats and those independents who vote with with these that kind of philosophy and have the same values uh, don't realize that the churches are... Are, they don't stop just because there's no election. And they are out there kicking the, the, the issues of faith and belonging to the church as a real energizing function and identifying anything, anyone who thinks differently as the devil and Satan and just going for it. And this is a constant, constant feed of energy and organization into this kind of thinking. And so while some candidates sit and wait for elections, these people are out there fomenting this point of view all the time. I mean, this just doesn't stop. It's never, it never stops. It's a crusade, I think, is how we should be describing it. I do. I mean, I think it has a lot of, like, story resonance. I know uh, Riverside Sheriff Chad Bianco is actually very deeply connected to Jack, I think Jack Hibbs, the pastor, um, who runs a sort of very large uh, who I think is, has a popular mega church, you know. Well, that'd be Pastor so, Tim at the 412 church. He's also connected to there. Uh, connected there. Tim as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, he, so what happens is, you know, there's two things about churches. So one is that, as you rightly point out, they have sort of a, 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 a built-in audience, right, mm-hmm. with a set of values. The second thing is that churches are tax-exempt. 
So they're not uh, taxed. Um, and so, so, you know, there's some debate about if you uh, start to be political. So, for example, church, and this is very common. I just saw the El Dorado sheriff sign, uh, swearing in, which happened inside of a mega church. Mm. So I think if you have these connections between uh, elected officials and churches, you, you, there starts to be a question about the tax-exempt status of churches, which is allegedly because they are not partisan. Um, and I think, as you are pointing out, like the the nature of the word linkage is like an extremely partisan linkage. It's not like a, a neutral, right? It's not like the churches are saying like, oh, we should minister to the poor right. or something like that. Like <laughs> this is a very like political linkage in terms of certain things that are largely rolling back mm-hmm. a lot of ideas that people have worked hard to put in place. So, mm-hmm. you know. Things like equity, diversity, inclusion, treating people equally, being tolerant. I think that their interest is in rolling all of that back. That's that's for sure. That's for sure. Well, <laughs> I I, I, I want to go to your next point because it's a really good segue into that, and that is what you said very simply, more money for sheriff that for sheriffs, that seems fine. <laughs> Well, one of the things I wanted, I would like to point out is that because law enforcement is so powerful, there is also, you know, even though law, you know, Democrats are right now courting law enforcement because there has been an increase in violent crime in some places. So if people are concerned because they are experiencing violent crime, I don't want them to feel like that, you know, is, is ignored or like we, you know, we ought to be concerned when people are being hurt and injured people should be protected but and as a result of that the democrats have been clinging to law enforcement and that's included biden giving them millions of dollars in equipment and hiring and through this there's a program through which the federal government distributes this money to local law enforcement including sheriffs one of the things about that process is that they don't vet sheriffs for things like belonging to far-right organizations like the Oath Keepers. Mm-hmm. So there is no, when people receive money, there is no vetting in terms of, like, have they belonged to an anti-government organization. It's interesting that there's no criteria that, that, that they have to go through in order to access any money in that way uh, or increase in budget allowance or anything because there's nothing there's nowhere can you find any kind of program that doesn't have some kind of i don't want to say strings attached but at least criteria and vetting that has to happen before those agencies receive anything whether it's an increase in budget or any kind of 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 money at all and yet not here not here no i mean not at all the cops program doesn't and in fact this has been a well-known fact since the 90s. Uh, unfortunately, this has been well. So a- after the initial wave of funding through this federal program, there was an analysis done. And, you know, one might think, oh, we're giving uh, underfunded law enforcement more money, right? That seems, I think, on the face of it, like a good goal. However, the analysis found that actually they don't uh, vet the departments to see if they need the money. So say you have a department that's maybe swamped with calls, um, they found that those departments were not getting the money. Right, it's not uh, the needs people based. who were getting money. Right. Yeah, it, it was not needs based. So uh, some places were just getting money for without proving that they needed it, in other words. Mm-hmm. 
Nowhere have I seen it. You know, that is not generally how things happen. But in this case, it seems to be the effort to enlist into a cause, give money. And and that's just that doesn't really do us any good because it causes more crime, especially if you're going to relax the gun laws and allow more concealed weapons. I mean, you know, we could go on about that situation. But so whatever happened to demilitarizing the police? I mean, where did that go? Well, I'm going to clarify on that because I talked to I just talked to some very nice people with the American Friends Committee um, in Northern California, and I do think they have been. I mean, I want to be fair that people have been working very hard, especially in California, to reduce the amount of military equipment that police are able to get. I think that after the Ferguson uprisings, many people saw the tanks in the streets and were really alarmed. One of the things that started happening after the summer of 2020 uprisings is that not only did Trump kind of normalize sending tanks into the street like he did in Portland, that people began to stop objecting to it. And in fact, the move even among Democrats for fear of losing to Republicans began to fund law enforcement more. And, uh, you know, when this again circles back to the same thing, when law enforcement receives the money, they don't really go through a process on how to spend it. So, uh, as you point out, that it's not the same as, for example, when uh, public school teachers get money. Mm-hmm. It's not quite, right, school boards getting money. It doesn't operate the same. Exactly. When a law enforcement agency, <laughs> they're different. When a law enforcement agency gets money, they get to decide how to spend it. And they often either, either they spend it on kind of wasteful tech programs or uh, as, Chad Bianco did Riverside helicopters, by, like, gigantic <laughs> helicopters or his big trailer. Or- tricked out uh, squad cars and you know now this is this is a real thing and and you may be aware that immediately after winning that election the sheriff and the DA all went and and uh, also the controller if I if I have that right went for increases in their salaries right away and fortunately our supervisors did not vote that through but that was immediately that was step one not that any of that had anything to do with I don't know serving the community but it certainly was about serving themselves first at the dinner table. And I think that, that that's not really serving the population and certainly isn't protecting us. There are some big issues, and, and that's why I point out here in the, the Democratic state of California, we're fighting this same battle. We are fighting this same battle. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think that there's a misunderstanding that California is, you know, everyone in California is progressive. I would say that there are deep pockets of of Republicans. And honestly, I think people should also be aware that it's only gotten, I think, stronger after COVID, really only strengthened the, I I didn't mean to imply COVID was over, but I think that COVID really strengthened the bonds and the will of far-right movements, Mm -hmm. as did January 6th. And so they've really become more, I think, determined Mm-hmm. Gave them their rallying cry, and of course, all of that. Both of those examples, of course, were the were the fomentations of uh, number forty five, who instituted those points of view and made those and solidified those views as the rallying points, and thereby polarizing um, the population, but also um, giving cause and giving visible cause. I mean, if you're wearing a mask, uh, you. you you don't know if you're going to encounter some violence just for wearing a mask in a supermarket. So these are true things. So uh, you do end up with a kind of a positive thing, and you say uh, democracy is saved, sort of. So talk about that. <laughs> I 
think that when, you know, many people have talked about the fact that we, you know, look, the 2022, I was like, what year is it? The 2022 elections have gone, they went well. I mean, other than Cary Lake in Arizona, the vast majority of people did, they accepted the results. We did not see a huge number of election deniers voted into office. And I think that that is a good sign. I mean, I think it's a sign you know, one thing that people have talked about is it's a sign that people, voters, you know, went to the polls and voted that that was not what they wanted. I think it's also a sign, no one wants to give the media much credit. I do think it's a sign that the media did a a good job, that they alerted people to things that were going on such that people knew and would then go out and vote accordingly mm-hmm. now that they had the information. Well, and I think that there is, uh, to your to your point, Jessica, uh, the January 6th committee and the viewing of that on media and watching it in the segments. And I think they did a fantastic job of organizing their media presentation in a way that was followable. And so it may not have change the minds of those who are in the opposition, but I think it strengthened the resolve of those who thought this was a tragedy for our country. And that may have helped with those, I mean, I, for sure, that helped bring out the vote for that for our last election. Yes, I do. I agree with you. I think that did definitely have an impact on people. I think it reminded people of the urgency of voting. And that urgency is something we continually have to talk about. I know you're going to do that, Jessica. And please, please give me a call when your book is ready. This has been Joy Silver on Outspoken. And remember, we're going to stand up. We're going to fight back because this is what democracy looks like. Thank you.